Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 327th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by AHIMA, the American Health Information Management Association. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Welcome back. You've been missed. Oh, good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. I missed you, too. <laughs> Thank you very much. This morning, our lead story is about the recent release of the ICD-10 PCS code files. There's lots of information in those files. Indeed, there is. And reporting our lead story this morning is the past president of the California Health Information Management Association. That's Gloria Ann Bryant. Uh, another story we're continuing to report on is the social determinants of health. Indeed. Joining us this morning to report on the social determinants of health is one of the leading subject matter experts, Ellen Fink-Samdick. And you also have a report today on a very, very serious subject. Yes, Laura Heyman and I will discuss the documentation of non-accidental trauma. Ooh, looking forward to that. We have much news to report this morning, and we begin with Sherry Dumford. Sherry's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to register for a webcast with Dr. Erica Reamer on myocardial infarctions Wednesday, June 20th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now is Sherry Dumford. Thank you, Chuck. Well, as you know, billions of electronic transactions based on X12 standards are utilized daily across industries such as supply chain, transportation, government, and, of course, our healthcare. So the work that's being done here at X12 meeting is extremely important. There are over 300 people in attendance here in Jacksonville at the Hyatt Riverfront, where meetings will be going on until Thursday. And on any given day, there will be 30 to 35 work group meetings underway. For example, yesterday, the Claims Encounter and Attachment Work Group meeting was held. Claim Status and Claim Acknowledgement Information Work Group was met. And then today, the Provider Information Group, the Post-Adjudicated Claim and Data Reporting, and the Claim Status and Claim Acknowledgement Work Group will meet again. So a highlight of this evening is actually going to be the Clearinghouse Caucus. And the Clearinghouse Caucus is a multi-stakeholder meeting led by the Cooperative Exchange, the National Association for Clearinghouses. This is just really a great educational forum for multi-stakeholders to discuss current and emerging regulations and business issues that exist. And so obviously here at the X-12 meeting, the end products of these work groups are essential to the daily workflow for healthcare providers across the country. All in all, the work groups are working hard to finalize the finishing touches on the uh, standards to ensure uh, the changes are really ready before they are put out for public comment. Yesterday, a separate group, the Innovation Task Force, met and here at X12, and we had representation for many stakeholders, including HADA, to again brainstorm solutions for prior authorization, which continues to be a burden and a big pain point for physicians and ultimately patients. So no solutions yet, obviously, but everyone is working hard to collaborate and move that needle on prior authorization. Finally, I had an opportunity to speak with Gary B. 
Beatty, chair of X12, yesterday and asked him to give me a few highlights from this meeting. And he cited they're working toward the final run on 7030 and second, working to release the T3s in a more timely and frequent basis. So lots of good work is going on every day here, a very busy time. And we want to just give a shout out and many thanks to all the volunteers who offer their time and leading these efforts to make sure that workflows are working as they should. So that's it from Jacksonville. Thanks, Sherry, very much. That was Sherry Dumford. Sherry was representing the Healthcare Administrative and Technology Association. She was reporting on the Extra Conference now underway in Florida. It's Tuesday, it's June 5th, 2018, and you're listening to the 327th edition of Tucked In Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by AHIMA, the American Health Information Association. This summer, they invite you to not one, but two great meetings in Baltimore. Attend the CDI Summit, the premier industry event of the year, August 6th and 7th, to hear the nation's leading CDI experts speak about the challenges and successes affecting the CDI industry. Then stay for the CDI Academy, August 8th through 10th, to learn ways to develop and enhance your existing CDI program. And now for a limited time when you register for both the CDI Summit and CDI Academy, you'll receive two meetings for the price of one. But hurry, this offer ends today, June 5th. Visit ahima.org backslash CDI combo to register. Thank you, Clark Anthony. This morning our lead story is about the recently released ICD-10 PCS code files. With more details, here is the past president of the California Health Information Association, Gloria Ann Brank. Good morning, Gloria Ann. Good morning. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning to everyone out there. I'm here in San Diego at the California Health Information Association Annual Conference, a great event to attend. But I want to share with you that the ICD-10 PCS Procedure Coding System 2019 files were released in late May, as you just mentioned, and we're all pleased to have the information well in advance of the October 1st implementation date. The full effective date of the new ICD-10 PCS codes and their changes is for discharges, hospital inpatient discharges, occurring from October 1st, 2018 to September 30th. 2019. This means for fiscal year 2019, there are 392 new PCS codes, eight revised code title, and 216 deleted PCS codes. That brings the total to 78,881 PCS codes for 2019. Now, the release files include the official ICD-10 PCS coding guidelines, which contains one new guideline and a few minor revisions of changes. That new guideline is B3.17, and this was added in response to public comment. The guideline is regarding transfer procedures using multiple tissue layers. Part of it states that the root operation transfer contains qualifiers that can be used to specifically when a a transfer flap is composed of more than one tissue layer, such as a musculocutaneous flap. And you have to read the full guidance because I'm not going to read that here for you today. Also, we have some revised guidance in A10 guideline, B37, and B6.1A. So take a peek at those. Those are important. They were a response to public comment and internal review. And then the files that we were mentioning contain also 
the summary list, which kind of tells you the total changes. And then there is tables and index file, the code files, which lists all the codes, and then a PCS order file, which is a long and abbreviated titles file, and an addendum file. And then last, they have a PCS conversion table file. So there's lots of files to download and look at. In preparing for the PCS changes, it will be important for your coding staff, coding auditors, and also even coding educators to review these changes very thoroughly. It might even be a good idea to discuss them with your department or your group company. And another best practice to do is to attend a formal webinar or seminar on the topic of the code changes in certain sections, as this can enhance one's preparedness and knowledge. I like it when we have case scenarios in our practice sessions so that we can really enhance our knowledge. Many HIM coding professional associations and companies offer these types of programs, so keep your eye out for these. I'm sure there's going to be lots of them available. I also like to research surgical procedures for some of these new codes, and you can do that by going out, of course, on the Internet online to gain greater knowledge and understanding of clinically the procedure and even get some images. This really helps boost your coding competency. Also, plan for a coding audit on ICD-10 PCS around a month maybe after the code changes or within the first quarter at least, which would be October through December of 2018. And this would be done to validate coding accuracy, look for documentation issues, and educational opportunities. This is also, of course, true for ICD-10 CM, the diagnosis codes as well. And if you check my article in ICT and Monitor, you can obtain the link to the CMS.gov Medicare site for all these different files and information. And I hear the ICD-10 CM 2019 release should be out later this month. Thank you, Glorianne. That was very helpful. That was the past president of the California Health Information Association, Glorianne Bryant. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you very much, Glorianne. And by the way, you can read Glorianne's reporting on the new ICD-10 PCS code files at icd10monitor.com. Our Tuesday focuses on one of the hottest topics in healthcare: social determinants of health. To continue our coverage of this trending topic, here is one of the most recognized authorities on the subject, Alan Fink-Samnick. Good morning, Alan. Welcome to Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you, and good morning, everybody. So, Here's the thing. The social determinants of health aren't new. They've been around for centuries. Social and environmental factors influence health outcomes with considerable evidence to validate this fact. However, the social determinants became one hot, sexy topic once they were associated with out-of-control healthcare costs and that R word, readmissions. In 2014, 77% of hospitals with the highest share of low-income patients were penalized for readmissions. This compared to 36% of facilities with the least poor patients. The social determinants are directly attributed to $1.7 trillion spent on 5% of the population. Now, focus on costs in the industry has been with us since the 1980s when the Social Security Act was amended to include those diagnostic-related groups, or DRGs, for all Medicare patients. But the culture of the healthcare industry changed forever, transitioning from one focused on care of the patient's health to that of managing the business of healthcare. 
Why is this important to coding? Well, coding is about costs and reimbursement, standard knowledge across every practice setting. Being able to validate the clinical rationale for treatment is written within the DNA of every healthcare professional, or at least should be. That documentation becomes the holy grail to code appropriately as well as achieve financial sustainability. Now, in the scope of the social determinants, using the ICD-10Z or stress codes are a mandate. 88 assignable codes from Z55 to 65 represent persons with potential health hazards related to socioeconomic and psychosocial circumstances. The non-clinical factors impacting health like homelessness, income, unemployment, literacy and education, social isolation, history of abuse and or family violence. Ron Hirsch and Diane Iverson wrote comprehensive articles for RAC Monitor and ICD-10 Monitor respectively on this topic. These codes are based on non-clinical documentation by case managers, social workers, and other team members. And when you consider the small role played by clinical factors in the risk of premature death, this becomes especially powerful. As little as 10% with other more pressing causes, 40% toward individual behavioral factors like treatment adherence, acceptance of the need for treatment, 30% for individual genetics, 20% for social and environmental factors. Lack of attention to the social determinants increases costs. Findings recently yielded a 10% cost reduction for patients successfully connected to social service programs compared to those who weren't. That's about $2,400 per person annually identified. Evidence shows how these programs improve community health and wellness for Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries. Emerging resources and partnerships empower providers to better respond and manage the social needs of their patient populations. Insurers lead the latest charge from Blue Cross Blue Shield's new zip code effect program that partners with Lyft, CVS, and Walgreens to address transportation and pharmacy deserts to Kaiser's new $200 million initiative to address homelessness in eight states. Those impacted by the social determinants are part of the fabric of society and must be acknowledged and addressed. Healthcare organizations can no longer afford to treat and street. Staff must be integrated into case management teams and processes who are knowledgeable about the scope and impact of the social determinants, plus the fiscal impact on the organization. Oh, and assuring appropriate coding will leverage reimbursement, vital to any organization's long-term sustainability. Erica? Thank you, Ellen. That was Ellen Fink-Samnick. Ellen is an award-winning author and subject matter expert on the social determinants of health. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you very much, Alan. And you can read Alan's fascinating reporting on social determinants of health in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitory News. This morning, our national spotlight is on the subject of non-accidental <coughs> trauma, NAP, as it, as it were known clinically, but historically we now call it child abuse. Here now is Laura Heyman. Laura is a clinical documentation integrity specialist at a major Midwest teaching facility, which is also a level one pediatric trauma center. Laura is also a registered nurse. Good morning, Laura, and welcome to the broadcast. So what's your experience with non-accidental trauma? Well, um, let me tell you. The challenges of coding child abuse uh, really 
became a source of continued interest for me when ICD-10 rolled out, and among the changes was a coding guideline that included a code for child abuse. And anytime I say child abuse, abuse in the interest of time, I uh, want you all to understand that I mean suspected or confirmed. Um, also, with that change came the guideline that child abuse would be the principal diagnosis resulting in the correct DRG. Uh, my work at, the, at this particular hospital is um, reviewing the pediatric ICU records where the critical trauma patients are admitted, and unfortunately, a certain percentage of those trauma patients are identified as non-accidental traumas, known by the acronym NAT. And NAT doesn't code to anything. When I encountered these NAT cases, I looked into what exactly does NAT mean. And in doing research, I found that it's used by practitioners as accepted verbiage for patients whose injuries were thought to be inflicted. In other words, suspected child abuse. Well, it bothered me that it was a euphemism, if you will, for a victimized child, and which made things even more confusing for me because at our facility, when a child is considered a NAT admission, there's a highly choreographed series of events that include a social work consult, an internal child protective services consult, a referral to government child welfare agencies, and a call to the authorities in the locale where the injury is thought to have occurred. It is a swift and precise response triggered for the sake of protecting and advocating for a child who is in need of safekeeping. And yet the documentation didn't take me to the correct code. So I thought I'd reach out to Dr. Reamer and fill her in on what I was looking at. Meanwhile, um, the pediatric team at our facility is a group of highly dedicated and very respected surgeons whose work for children is tireless. So I decided I would start by speaking with them and ask them why they were so liberal with the term NAT rather than documenting suspected child abuse. And the responses that I got were, one, suspected child abuse is inflammatory and Two, child abuse was a legal term, and they, as physicians, didn't want to be making any legal determinations. And my response was, hmm, what is more inflammatory than a victimized child? And then I went out to point, on, to point out that there is an irony in using NAT or non-accidental trauma, which leaves no doubt that the injuries sustained were inflicted upon the patient and not accidental the term suspected child abuse doesn't indict or convict anyone. It just states what the clinical facts are and leads to the correct coding path. Fortunately, the trauma team, who's the first, uh, first line of providers in these cases, um, have, become to, have become more sensitive and, and begun to reflect in their documentation uh, that these children that are NATs are, are truly suspected child abuse children, child abuse cases, but I still face unnecessary queries, particularly when I query an attending who's not on the trauma team, such as a PICU attending. They defer to whatever the trauma team says or whatever the physician um, who is on the Child Protective Services team says that that's what they're willing to, to document. Uh, it's, it, it 
necessitates a lot of unnecessary queries. And my thought was, if Nat isn't going to go away anytime soon, maybe there was a way or there should be a way to include NAT as a term that can code to child abuse suspected or confirmed um, and perhaps use also non-accidental injury or shaken baby syndrome as other terms that can be uh, coded as child abuse instead of just not being able to capture these child abuse cases without having a lot of queries to uh, put out. Thanks, Laura. That was Laura Heyman. Laura is a clinical documentation integrity specialist at a major Midwest teaching facility, which is also a level one pediatric trauma center. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, very much. Uh, Erica, what's your reaction to uh, non-accidental trauma? Well, when Laura brought this topic to my attention, It brought back not-so-fond memories of potentially abused children from my residency years. We were given strict instructions not to definitively declare child abuse, even if we believed it beyond a shadow of a doubt. We had to include the word alleged, the same qualifier we used in sexual assault cases, because those were legal determinations, not clinical. As I discussed it with Laura and she mentioned that the clinicians thought the word abuse seemed inflammatory, it occurred to me that the phrase non-accidental trauma might seem to have a less of a judgmental connotation. Abuse implies malice, but non-accidental could be, as Laura pointed out to me, an infliction of injury without necessarily intention, kind of like a crime of passion. Perhaps that is why clinicians viewed NAT as a clinical diagnosis, but child abuse as an indictment. I confess that I don't always understand why coders insist on strictly following indexing rules in some instances, but be more lenient in other cases. What I do know is that it is critical to get this particular condition identified and addressed. Obviously, you don't want to send a child back into an environment where he's endangered, And there is clear epidemiological and research benefit to picking up cases of abuse. So regardless of whether they call it abuse or NAT, providers should be encouraged to specify when it is suspected because this does change the code. The provider doesn't have to explicitly document confirmed. The official guidelines take us there if they document abuse or neglect. Was I torturing the coders with the word alleged? I don't really see that it goes to suspected in the indexing, I imagine all uncertain diagnoses should actually land on suspected as opposed to confirmed. If it is ruled out, there is a Z04 encounter code which is used instead. And as Laura said, adult and child abuse must be sequenced first, defining the DRG. They even supersede external causes codes of terrorism. So when Laura brought this issue to my attention, I felt it was important enough to try to get this rectified. I sent an email to the CDC, which is the entity which modifies the ICD-10-CM code set through the Coordination and Maintenance Committee. The email is nchsicd10cm at cdc.gov. I was thrilled when Dr. David Berglund, the medical officer, promptly responded and recommended that we submit the issue to the coding clinic because he felt like it seemed like an important topic. So to remind you all of that process, 
it is optimal to supply examples after scrubbing them of PHI. You go to www.codingclinicadvisor.com. At the top, there are the do's and don'ts of submitting questions and the button for submission. You do not need to have a subscription to Coding Clinics to submit a question. You fill out the online form, attach the supplemental documents, and provide contact info. Even if a response takes quite some time, it is empowering to act on these coding uh, issues, you know, these coding clinical disconnects, rather than just griping about them. Hopefully, someday in the near future, NAT and non-accidental trauma will index to physical abuse. We'll let you know. Thanks, Erica, very much. I want to ask you about the conference you were at last week. You were at the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists. What's some of the news coming out of that uh, conference? Uh, spring, the season of pollen and making annual conference rounds. So two weeks ago, I was absent from the Talk 10 Tuesdays to attend the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists annual national conference, which was held in San Antonio. Last week, I was in Maine with my family. Um, I flew in a day early to attend the advisory board planning session, and we had lively discussions about the trajectory of our organization. Three points from that. One, we are considering changing the I from improvement to stand for integrity. Two, we are trying to figure out how to recruit and appeal to new members. There are many more folks who do CDI activities than belong to Actus. It is a great venue to be connected and educated, and you should consider joining if you don't belong already. And three, we discussed topics which are exploding in interest to our members, like outpatient CDI and HCC risk adjustment denials and the intersection of CDI and medical necessity. I did not attend any pre-conference this year, but they always have some awesome, awesome offerings. And this year it was CDI boot camp, CCDS exam prep class, and physician advisor's role in CDI boot camp. The main conference opens with a welcome reception in the vendor area, which is packed with resources. And the theme of this conference was one thing. And it represented, if you were able to bring home one thing that you learned to share with your colleagues and implement with your team, it would all be worth it. Each morning there's a keynote speaker. Allison Masari was the last day's profoundly moving keynote speaker, recounting her tale of overcoming almost being burned alive in a horrific motor vehicle collision. She shared her experience with the healthcare system and delivered an inspiring message of compassion and resilience. The conference had six tracts, clinical encoding, management and leadership, quality and regulatory, expansion and innovation, outpatient CDI, and pediatrics. Sessions were identified as being basic, intermediate, or advanced. Some presenters describe a problem or a program at their institution or organization. There are clinical reviews of conditions like sepsis and encephalopathy and a coding clinic update. Denials has become a very popular topic. Kelly Scarepa and I co-presented on clinical validation to a packed room of over 600 people. Data analytics, risk adjustment methodologies, and outpatient CDI were prevalent. I really enjoyed CDI for acute inpatient rehab facilities by Anthony Nikwaku, especially because I knew nothing about the subject. It was fascinating because they use a completely different risk adjustment system. I also loved Lori Prescott's talk on how CDI managers can respond to other departments' requests for assistance. If you ever, ever have a chance to hear her present, I 
strongly recommend it. She's a vast knowledge base and a fantastic presentation style. On Tuesday evening, there was a subsidized closing reception, which offered great food. And this conference is always an awesome opportunity to socialize and network with other professionals with a passion for CVI. But if you couldn't make it, Actus will be presenting a post-conference webinar series over the summer. Check out the website and join us. Speaking of joining me, on Thursday, I'm doing a webinar on myocardial infarctions, and you can do it live or on demand. Go to our website to sign up. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Erica. Uh, that's going to be a wrap for this edition. This is our 327th edition of Talk Ten Tuesday. And Erica and I want to thank our guests today for being with us, Gloria and Brian Cherry Dumford. Laura Heyman, and our special guest, Alan Fink-Samnick. Thank you very much. Hope you're going to be joining me tomorrow for the Rose Dunn webcast. It's tomorrow on HCC. It's coming your way at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday and ITV 10 Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD 10 Monitor.